Hello, my friends. This is Rick Thomas. You're listening to the Life Over Coffee podcast. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode. This is episode 308. I'm going to do something a little different in this episode. I'm going to give you four recent short talks that I have made. Uh, I put them on social media, on our Instagram site, and also our Facebook site. They were received and commented on very well, and I thought, you know, it it would really be cool to uh, take those four short talks and put them in one episode. All four of them are anywhere between six and seven minutes long, and and I have them connected here, and I'm about to go into them, and what's going to happen is that you'll just hear one, and then it will fade out, and then we'll go into the next one, the next one, and uh, finally the fourth one, and that will wrap up the podcast. But they're on four different subjects, so this would be like uh, four topics in, in one podcast, and they are abbreviated, so they're not really lengthy, but I think that you will find all four of them to be beneficial or at least that's what folks have said uh, on our social media sites. If you do not follow us on Facebook, you are welcome to do that. We have a lot of folks out there who love to receive our resources out there. We also have an Instagram account as well. Those are the two primary accounts that we use as far as social media. There are several others, but those are the two primary ones. And so if you want to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, it's two different things. I do different things on those two accounts, and you're welcome to do that. We would love to have you uh, as part of those who receive our resources. But every now and then, I just do videos just on the spot, impromptu videos where I'm communicating certain things to uh, the folks, and they really don't go anywhere else. They don't go on YouTube. They don't go on Vimeo. They don't go in this podcast, and you don't see those if you're not on those platforms. And so I wanted to bring them from those platforms and put them here. All four of these talks are four responses that I gave to four of our students at our Mastermind program. I supervise, I'm one of the supervisors in our program. Our Mastermind program's intensive. Uh, It's not a one of those fully automated courses where you don't interact with humans. You do interact with humans, and I'm one of the three supervisors in our program, and so it is a heavily hands-on program, and so I want you to hear uh, my supervision, basically, to these four students, and so after I did an assignment, I I shared some things with them, and I turned right around and put some of those thoughts in video, and so I want you to listen to them. And also, if you're interested in our Mastermind program, please jump on our site and learn more about that. All right, here we go. Four talks to our students. I've had a couple of student meetings uh, last night, and I just finished one uh, just a few moments ago, a student in New York and a student in California. And in both of those conversations, or a part of those two conversations, uh, we were talking about what is going on in our culture and how people are are making decisions that are anti-God and they're anti-Bible. And with my two students, one of the things that I shared with them, and because it's fresh in my mind, I want to share it with you as well, is that truth is like a a mathematical formula. Uh, Truth is is logical, uh, like two plus two equals four. And if you deviate away from truth, everything just collapses. Because again, truth is logical, truth is a a formula, 
that you move down this path and if you deviate off of truth, if two plus two is no longer four, if the mathematical equation, if we make it up to be something else, everything just falls apart. And so what, and it's important for us to understand this is because we're seeing people walk against truth and they resist truth and they have their own truth and they're just making stuff up but we know that it's not going to work. I mean, think about all of the countries, all of the world leaders throughout history, all of the people, all the people that you know, and maybe even yourself, when you have come up against walking in God's truth or doing your own thing, it never ends well. Now, I don't know when it will end unwell for them, but I know that it will in unwell for them at some point. It always does. I have friends, I have family members, I have my own personal experience. Times when I have deviated off the path of truth. In Proverbs it says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is, is death. They, deviate, they deviated away from truth and the end was death. It always collapses it always falls apart. It never ends well. It never ends right because truth is like a mathematical formula. It is this logical path that you take. Now, one of the reasons that it doesn't end well, uh, as Proverbs says that, well, the end of our ways is death. God's way is, is the way that we should walk in. But one of the reasons it doesn't end well when you deviate off and away from truth, in James 4, 6, it says that God is oppositional to proud people. And so a proud person chooses an alternate path, and God opposes that. And so the person who is resisting truth is resisting God. And in that text, in James 4, 6, it means that God is a warring army. And so God is a warring army against anyone that tries to deviate, the proud person who tries to deviate off the path of truth. And then there's another verse in Romans 1.18. It says that the, the wrath of God comes down from heaven on all of those who suppress the truth, press the truth out of their lives. And so as you think about what's going on in the culture, there are millions of people, the wokesters, the politicians, the culture warriors. They're rejecting God. They're deviating from the truth. You already know it's not going to go well for them. You can predict their future. Now, we don't know when, again, we don't know when it's going to collapse, but it's going to collapse on them because there is only one way. And I trust that when that time comes that many of these people will realign themselves to this, this logical formula and they will, they will begin to walk, walk down truth. And that's our hope because we know this to be true. You cannot deviate from God's path and expect a proper and desirable and beneficial outcome. And so... We want to guard our hearts from over-worrying about what's going on. I'm not saying that we, we shouldn't be concerned. I'm not saying that we shouldn't impose ourselves in the nonsense that's going out, out 
on out there. We should impose ourselves. We should speak truth to it. But we also want to maintain and be steadied by the hope that, that truth will win. Truth will always win. Truth is undefeated. And every person that has come up against truth has, has collapsed, has, has fallen apart. One last thing I think about Nebuchadnezzar, um, that he you know, thought that he had done all of this and he had done all these wonderful things and he was eating grass a little bit later because he too was, was trying to confront truth and, and to do it his way. But truth is undefeated and that's the hope that we have and we know that truth is going to win. We don't have a timeline on that, but we have the hope of knowing that, that we want to walk down that path. It is a logical, formulaic path that we walk down and Though they choose not to walk in truth, we want to walk in it because that is the best path, a path of righteousness that we want to walk down. And so I trust that that will be an encouragement uh, to you in some very dark times uh, that we are in. But keep walking down those paths of truthfulness. One of the things that I appreciate about our interactive work that we do with our students in our mastermind program where they're sending in their assignments and we're responding to them is that it is spiritually stimulating. It's spiritually stimulating to me. It's spiritually uh, stimulating uh, to them as we interact with each other about these spiritual biblical concepts. I was just doing a report for one of our students and the student made this comment about finding contentment in God alone. Very good comment, very good thought that he was having about this idea of finding contentment in God alone. But I caution the student to make sure that when you are talking about finding contentment in God alone, that you put some flesh on that because it can be confusing to people to hear that term. I think when a lot of people hear being content in God alone, they can think about being isolated. You know, like sitting on a mountain. If I'm just sitting on a mountain and praying, then I can be content with God alone. And the accent mark is, is on this idea of being alone. And one of the worst times that you will hear this type of counsel is when a spouse, a husband or wife, let's say they just lost their spouse through death or through divorce, or maybe they are in the marriage, but yet the marriage is not what it should be. And so one of the spouses feels alone. And then the counselor comes along and says, you should just be content in, in God alone. Biblically speaking, that kind of counsel is hogwash. Hogwash is not a Bible word, but it just made sense right there to, to say that. Because if that's all you say, that's really damaging. That, is, that can be a hurtful thing to say because you're asking the person to be content in not having community. You're asking the person to be content by being alone. And God did not make that person that way. God said in 2.18 that of Genesis, it's not good for the person to be alone. God made Adam and Eve for community. I'm not saying that everybody has to be married. I am saying that everybody who wants to reflect or to image God well, they have to be in community. Being in community, whether you're married or not, it will bring contentment. And so if a person is alone, let's say they just lost someone, or they don't have good biblical community, and you say you need to be content in God alone, 
that becomes hurtful counsel because what they really need to do is to, to be what God has called them to be, to be in a community, to be part of a body, to build relationships, to have at least one solid friend that they can build with. And so being content in God alone does not mean just being alone all the time. You can find contentment in God alone when you are actually fulfilling the things that God has made us to do. And two of those things are being in community and the other one is work. One of the ways to find contentment in God alone, or another way to find contentment in God alone, is by doing things. God made Adam to work. We, we are made by a creator, and there is something within us that wants to create. And so some, maybe the most contented that a person could ever be is to be in a community doing things, a God-centered relationship or relationships, and God-centered activity. You're doing things for the right reasons. And so being content in God alone doesn't mean isolating yourself from the world and you're going to find contentment. No, you'll, you'll be frustrated eventually. Uh, it will wear on you. It will affect you in an adverse way because God built you to connect with other people. God built you to be creative. And if you're doing those two things, doing it the right way, you will find contentment in God alone because you are fulfilling what God has called you to do and who God has called you to be. And so I just wanted my student to think about this idea of, of God alone and to put some flesh on it so that people who are looking for contentment, they won't look inward to trying to be content through satisfying themselves, this insatiable desire to satisfy ourselves. We actually find contentment by pouring ourselves into others and building God-centered relationships. And then we also find contentment by doing things that are redemptive in the world, in the culture, in other people's lives. And so by doing and by being, by connecting with others and doing things, you are imaging God and you will find a contentment in God alone because you are fulfilling how He has made you. I trust that's helpful. Thank you so much for watching. I was just wrapping up a report from one of my students and one of the things that I appreciate about our students is their humility. When they go through the course, they're regularly confronted with things that they need to change about themselves. And they have this habit of always looking at it from the log in their eye rather than thinking about you know, what other people have done to them in their lives. Now, there is a time to think about what other people have, have done, but that can't be our first look. Our first assessment can't be out there. It has to be here. And that's just part of the DNA of our student body, and I appreciate that. And this particular student was talking about how uh, he uses frictionless, risk-free relationships in order to build community. So he has a desire for friends, he has a desire to build community, but he has a hard time relating to people in a long-term way in which you can never get away from those relationships like marriage and family and children and so forth. 
And so what he has been doing historically is that he finds part-time relationships like, like through social media, like through Facebook, or even a counselor. And I was telling him, he was telling me, he said, well, that makes no, no sense. And I said, well, in a way, it, it makes no sense. And I agree with you. I understand what you're, you're saying. You really can't fully satisfy our longing for community if we fill that longing with social media, cyber relationships, or, or finding our friendships through part-time relationships like work, for example, or even a counselor, which is a, a temporary season where you can have a friendship with someone, but it's not an extended long-term season. But the problem that we have in building long-term relationships is that there isn't a break from those relationships. And they can become complicated and complex because I sin against you, you sin against me. There's going to be friction inside those relationships. And, and a lot of people struggle. Honestly, quite honestly, we struggle making relationships. And we try it. And it doesn't work out. And then we settle for something less than what we could have in these long-term permanent friendships that are imperfect at, at best. And so my friend was lamenting that, and he recognized that uh, he is that person that seeks these other relationships that he can get away from at any moment. For example, Facebook is, is excellent for that. You can you can have community, and then you can step away from it when it becomes difficult. Work can be similar that way as well, and you can have church friends that you interact with, but you keep them at arm's distance. But where it really becomes hard is like, say, in marriage. That is a 24-7 construct that there really aren't any breaks from, or a parent-child relationship where we're with each other all the time. Those are the contexts that really prove how good we are at, at building relationships. It, it, it shows us, it demonstrates what our relationship fluency is, what our relationship skill is. Now, the unfortunate thing is, is that, and I see this a lot uh, as I interact with people, when they talk about the disappointments in relationships, too many of us immediately default and talk about what other people did to them. And it's almost like there's a lack of self-awareness to realize that, that you're imperfect too, and in some ways you have complicated the relationship yourself. But as I was saying earlier, that if your first thought, if your first assessment is about what others have done to you, then you're really starting at, this, at, at a bad place, the wrong place, and you're setting up something that it can really turn into making you a, a bitter spirit. Now, some people don't know me and, you know, they can say, well, well, who are you to talk about disappointing relationships? And I won't go into great detail here, but I, I know what it's like to have an abusive drunk uh, dad. I, I know what it's like to have two brothers murdered. I know what it's like to go through a, a divorce but I also know what it's like to recognize that my role and, and how I can respond to those things. And what you won't see and what you won't hear is, is bitterness because it, it's incumbent, it was incumbent upon me to, even though I could make a case for how disappointing some of these relationships were, 
in my life, I have to take the first assessment at myself and how can I change in spite of what others do so I don't become that bitter person who settles for relationships that really aren't satisfying as they could be. And so I want to change and I, I trust that my student, in fact, I know that my student, I told him, I commended him, affirmed him, encouraged him. I said, you're on the right path because you recognize that you have built these temporary part-time relationships in your life because you're afraid to have real-time 24-7 relationships where you can be vulnerable, where you make mistakes, they make mistakes, and you have to work it out, and you're afraid of all of that, and so you build safe relationships. But again, you recognize that that they may be safe, but they're not satisfying, and he's willing to take his soul to task and, and own up to his responsibility in changing so he can step into and begin a process of looking for those relationships that he can build long term. And so I trust that you know, maybe the Lord would use this for some of you who are settling for less because of so many disappointments in your life or, or whatever these situations may have been. But if you're settling for safe relationships, uh, God wants us to grow deeper with each other. And there are challenges in doing that. And I, I certainly understand that complexity as I have been there many times myself. But I just wanted to share that with my about my student and, and his willingness to take his soul to task uh, because he sees the need that ultimately these shallower part-time relationships aren't what God is calling him to do as he learns more about God through the difficulties and challenges of interacting with other people. I hope you all have a blessed day. I just finished another homework assignment with one of our students and the lady was talking about submitting, some, she was talking about biblical submission uh, to her husband and she was putting it in the context of when she was, um, when they were first married, her husband was not a Christian or he just became a Christian and hadn't been one for like say a year maybe at that time. And so he didn't know a lot about the Lord. So therefore she knew more about the Lord than, than he did. She was more mature than he was, but yet she was called to submit to him. And so what you have here in this situation, you have a spouse who knows more about the Bible, has been walking with God for, at that time in her life, two decades. And her husband has not been walking with the Lord, but, you know, say uh, half, half, half a minute or so. And so it made a great point. And so one of the things that I, I shared with her is about the lack of equality uh, between two spouses that I'm talking about in their sanctification. I'm talking about in, in biblical maturity. And I made the point to her that no two, two spouses are the same. There's no equality in marriage between the two uh, persons. One person, uh, one spouse will be maturer than the other spouse. And then maybe the other spouse is more mature in other ways. And, and it could be that, that, that one spouse, like say the wife, is more mature in every possible way. Sometimes that happens, but even if the wife is more mature as this, uh, our, my student was back then uh, in the early days of their marriage, even if that spouse is more mature, it doesn't negate the responsibility and the opportunity for that spouse to 
to submit to her husband, which she gladly she gladly did. And of course, that was a sign of her maturity that she could su submit to her husband, even though she was more mature than he was. Another, an illustration of this, uh, to just give it an analogy, is you could think of it like, let's say that you had a church member who was a, a Greek professor, and the pastor barely passed Greek 101 in his undergrad uh, college class, this church member can still submit to the leadership of the pastor even though the church member knows a zillion times more, like say in the area of Greek. Sometimes people confuse submission with gifting, experience, know-how, and what they do is they place specific criteria on the, the leader, the person that they are sub submitting to, and they won't submit to that leader until that leader has uh, the gifting, the experience, or the know-how. Well, you, we really shouldn't mix those two things in this context in the way that I'm speaking. Like, If the wife said, I will submit to you when you become more mature than me, well, that would be wrong. She would be sinning. If the Greek professor said, I will submit to you, pastor, if you, uh, when you learn more Greek than I do, that would be wrong as well. It is a significant demonstration of humility of the person who knows more, but yet they submit to someone who knows less. Now, there are many illustrations of this. Let me give you just a few of them. A child, for example, can submit to his dad or mom, even though he knows more than his dad or mom in certain areas. Our children, for example, are in that place in their lives. They are learning specific things that's unique to their gifting. And because they're learning things that's unique to their gifting, they're learning things that we do not know at all or we don't know as proficiently as they know. And so even though they know more in certain areas, they still humbly submit to us. And that should not be uncommon. And if you have children who uh, in their teenage years and they're learning a specific skill set or something that is accompanying to their passion, they're going to know more than you about that thing. They're going to come to you and they're going to teach you and show you how to do it and do it effectively. And you just won't know how to do that. That's fine. They know more than you in certain areas, but yet they submit to you. A wife, by the way, can be this way. She can know more. She can be superior in certain areas, but yet she can still humbly uh, submit to uh, her husband. A church member, I illustrated that uh, earlier with um, the Greek professor, and there are many church members that there's tons of church members that, that know so much more than their pastor in certain areas. And their pastor can be totally ignorant in, in specific areas, but yet they can humbly submit to him. An employee can know more than the employer, uh, employer in specific areas, and again, they submit to them. So this is not an unusual thing to be able to submit to someone who uh, doesn't know what you know, maybe not even as mature as you are. We have a team here uh, with our ministry, and many of them, they're more mature. They know more in certain areas than I do, but yet they humbly submit and follow the leadership as well. And so this idea of, of 
I will not submit to you until you meet certain criteria. We need to be careful with that. We want to humbly submit uh, to those who are in those positions of authority uh, wherever those wherever that hierarchy may be. Now, before I wrap up this, let me go ahead and uh, state this because I think that I have to. We live in such a trigger-happy uh, culture that if I don't talk about abuse or authoritarianism and uh, paternalism and so forth, people will uh, you know, get all up in arms. I understand that. And I, I know that uh, when there's abuse and uh, like say in a marriage, you, you're not to you're not to submit. You're to run. Uh, you're not to submit. You're to you know go get help. Now that's understood. I'm talking about a no, I'm talking about normal context where uh, people are are acting normally, not these um, exaggerated contexts where people are are just wildly sinful. But in these normal situations where, you, where there's a call for biblical submission, biblical leadership, uh, sometimes biblical submission, uh, you do that even though the leadership is not as effective as this wife uh, was demonstrating. And by the way, uh, because of her humble uh, submission and followership to her husband, now we are multiple decades later and her husband is uh, matured into a, a biblical man and a, a true biblical leader leading her leading uh, their children and they have a, a wonderful marriage as it should be but in the beginning as far as their sanctification was concerned she was way up here he was down here but yet she submitted to him and that's just a beautiful illustration of what submission and humility can look like within a context so I hope that helps you I want to share that with you and also hope you have a blessed day you have been listening to life over coffee with rick thomas if you have a question for rick you can let him know by sending him a note through his website rickthomas.net that's rickthomas.net thanks for listening enjoy your coffee